Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Heads up. This podcast contains explicit language. Back in the early 2000s, the independent DVD business was booming. Discs were being sold in barbershops and train stations around the country. I'd get mine from a set of twin brothers who used to slang burnt CDs and DVDs on the corner of Alcatraz and Market Street in North Oakland. All I needed was a few bucks and I could purchase anything they had. Animated children's movies, raunchy adult flicks, or even blockbuster films. But what caught my attention were the underground documentaries about hip-hop in the streets of America. Locally, there were joints like Go Dumb USA, Oakland Gone Wild, and High Side in 1 and 2. These films took viewers to a world not readily shown in the mainstream or silver screen, which gave insight to stories of street culture in America. I love that kind of media, but as a young journalist, that wasn't the kind of media I was making. Even if I was talking about similar topics, my work was a little more, um, mainstream. In 2006, through Oakland's Youth Radio, I wrote and published an audio commentary for National Public Radio. It was about the cycle of birth and death. Youth Radio's Pendarvis Harshaw says the problems are all related. My commentary was partially inspired by my friend Willie Clay, who had been killed in January of that year. Will was my boy, and to be putting on a button-up and these hard-bottom shoes, to put him in a casket, it just didn't seem real. I was proud to honor a friend's story on national airwaves. And at the same time, I was hella frustrated. None of the homies were going to hear it. You'd be far-fetched to find a group of teenage black men riding around, slapping their local NPR station. I felt confined. I was doing stories about my community, but they were being made palatable for predominantly white middle-class audiences. I wanted to tell stories that would be on the local hip-hop radio station or on BET. I wanted to make a hood classic, like the bootleg DVDs people were selling, but I didn't have a lane for that. So I was using what channels I had to tell the stories of what I was experiencing. And I was just one of the many folks in my circle trying to make note of what was happening around us. Earlier that same year, some of my youth radio folks did a piece for NPR all about the hyphy movement. Here's my longtime friend, well-known Oakland-based educator and event host, Leon Sykes. Yeah. 
The hyphen movement is an act of free living. It's like having the Holy Ghost. Something just comes over you. you just yeah. Leon talked about the spirit and some of that goofy stuff, too. You can't stop. You hear the song. We get hyphy to, to Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yeah, a little comical. But it was dope to hear my partners talk about an aspect of our region's hip-hop culture on a national program. And that story was one of a handful of pieces that came from national outlets, from your MTVs and BETs to print publications like XXL, USA Today, The Los Angeles Times, and The Guardian. They all did specials on the hyphy movement. After years of neglect and underreporting from major media platforms, the Bay Area's hip-hop scene was once again in the limelight. But when the hyphy movement went mainstream, it changed things. And that's what capitalism does to culture, right? I'm Pendarvis Harshaw, and this is Hyphy Kids Got Trump. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. The first time I saw Hyphy in the media was on those hood DVDs from the early 2000s, and it looked a lot different than it did on the national depiction. There was a film series that originally debuted in 2004 named Hood to Hood, the Blockumentary. America is a cold place. Everywhere you go, it's the same. The only thing that changes is the slang a motherfucker talks and the weather a motherfucker's getting money in. Coast to coast, street to street, projects to projects, war to war, zone to zone, side to side, hood to hood. This is the blockumentary. The movies feature the grimiest hoods, the biggest guns, and the heaviest regional accents. There was rapping, fashion, cars, drugs, and more. Hood the Hood changed everything for me. In addition to showing me what was happening in the neighborhoods all around this country, the footage on the double disc DVD showed the streets of the Bay Area as I knew them to be. Fast, hyperactive, and enticingly dangerous. I was so juiced when I found out this film, a portal into what was going on in pockets of Milwaukee, Baltimore, Memphis, and more, was created by someone from the Bay Area. I was going to black neighborhoods. I was going to low-income neighborhoods. I was going to the highest crime rate neighborhoods. That's filmmaker Akees Bryant, a.k.a. Cash Out Keese. He's a stocky brown brother who's bald with low-cut facial hair, 
raised on the west coast of the United States in the mighty town of Vallejo, California. Keese tells me during a recent phone call that back in the day when he was making this film, he didn't really have a goal beyond just trying to see how people were getting it all across the United States. The only way you could see how a person was living was to actually go there and see with your own two eyes. It was where back then, you know, each different region, each different city, everybody had their own particular fashion and slang because the internet wasn't merging things. So Keith left Northern California to document what was really happening in working class black communities around the country. And people let their guard down and showed them things that were going on in their hoods. And Keith captured it on camera while carrying our region with him. Man, bringing that Bay Area flag, I was received well for the simple fact that, you know, the Bay Area is one of the only regions in the United States of America that's not gangbanging as far as like Bloods and Crips. I slid around the country neutral, you know what I'm saying? I didn't have any ties to anything that could have been opposing, you know what I mean? Then on top of that, I kept me a nice side stack of that California weed. That was, you know what I'm saying, it's a plus. At that time, you know, purple was hot. Yeah. Speaking of weed, the content of the films, drugs, guns, and all of that, it told the line of self-incrimination. But in reality, Keith was simply going to places where cameras weren't often rolling, and people were eager to show him how they were living. Hell yeah, we all Check man. this out, man. Hey, this is your man. number one player, Ed Lover, from Mill Street. Hey. Respect it or accept it, because you ain't going to check it. Oh, my, my. Three fingers. You see it. It was like a first of its kind since it was pre-YouTube. It was like a whole generation of people that that was their first time traveling out of their areas. I personally needed to see those other neighborhoods. Through this documentary, I saw glimpses of spots like Little Rock, Omaha, and Gary, Indiana. Locations I'd heard about, but I couldn't tell you anything about. It made me feel connected, like their hood is just like our hood. And their stories aren't getting widely told either. And the Bay isn't the only slept on region. Even if it was a bit sensational, it was dope to see my area mentioned as a part of this bigger story of hip hop and street culture in America. The first of Keith's three-part hood-to-hood documentary series was filmed a few years prior to the explosion of the quote, hyphy movement. It shows what hyphy was before it became mainstream enough to be mentioned on NPR. And unfortunately, like many things in popular culture, it took a tragic incident to get the hyphy movement on the national map. On Halloween night 2004, Andre Hicks, beloved rapper known to fans and loved ones as Mac Dre, was killed after performing at a show in Kansas City, Missouri. His death led to him becoming the patron saint of the hyphy movement. To this day, when his music comes on, people turn hands to form tees and this dance in his honor. Do It For Mac Dre is a battle cry. His life story is legendary. After achieving early stardom as a rapper in the late 80s and early 90s, he was sent to prison for conspiracy to rob a bank. He didn't budge when pushed to snitch on his comrades, and after he was released, he reinvented himself and made music that impacted a generation of kids all races from this region. He says Dre's passing kicked off a new chapter in the story of the Bay. The hyphy stuff really started like we had been doing it, but it didn't really get on like a national, national scene until like 
after Dre died, it was picking up steam. Mac Dre's music was foundational, and the photos and videos his Thiz Nation camp produced gave visuals to the culture of the Bay Area. Keese looks at Mac Dre's Trill TV 1 and Trill TV 2 as landmark films of that era. Yeah, man, it was just a buildup, and then, you know, it started, like, bringing our culture to, like, the, the forefront, you know what I mean? The news of Mac Dre's death sent a wave of grief through the Bay, but no one felt it like the folks inside of Dre's camp, especially the ones closest to him, who understood the impact of his music. Mac Dre, before his passing, it was just, he was releasing music at a different pace than everybody else. That's Chioki McCoy, AKA Seaside Stretch, a promoter and manager who's worked with a little bit of everybody, from San Francisco's pop star, 24 Karat Golden, to one of Atlanta's coldest lyricists and political activists, Killer Mike. But Stretch started off working with Mac Dre after a chance meeting on a flight from Vegas back to the Bay. The two linked there, but didn't become formal partners until a few years later. It was literally when Fizz Entertainment started. So that was somewhere around, formally working with him somewhere around like 2002, 2003. Stretch started off with promoting for Mac Dre, and over the years, he's worked with the mother load of artists from Northern California. In 2006, Stretch was focused on working with North Oakland's and Mr. Fab. Things were active in the Bay musically back then, but Stretch says the culture didn't make sense to outsiders. I think that at the time, everybody felt as if the Bay was being ignored, blackballed, hated on, or whatever. But in reality, the Bay Area was just going to its own beat of his own drum, didn't play by everybody else's rules, didn't kiss no ass, didn't do any of the things that other people would do to get on, meaning that, like, Bay Area artists weren't moving to New York or moving to L.A. or, like, Atlanta. They wasn't doing none of that. They was waiting for people to come to the Bay. And I think that at the time, it was like, well, if they don't fuck with us, then we'll just do our own thing. So I think that 2006 was a culmination of doing your own thing and it paying off, where you were not not concerned with what was going on on the outside. But Stretch says that the term hyphy, commercially, wasn't reflective of what was happening in the neighborhoods across Northern California. It was presented in a way that would be more friendly to everybody. You know what I mean? Just the term hyphy was, it meant something completely different than what it was commercialized as. You know what I mean? It it wasn't a good thing, you know what I'm saying? Like, they didn't say, like, oh, them kids is hyphy, and that meant that they were just dancing around having a good time. No, that meant they were destructive and violent, you know what I'm saying? So I think that, you know, it was marketed in a way that, you know, that corporations do to sell a product, which was the music. So that's the result of what people seen and what people live were two different things. But I think it became a self-fulfilling prophecy where, the people who were a part of the culture ended up changing things to fit what was sellable. Stretch says that the first time he even heard the term hyphy movement was through a marketing scheme Warner Brothers put together for the Fairfield-based group, The Federation. And the next time Stretch heard the term was also through the media. It was like a little dot called the hype on hyphy. And it was dubbed the hyphy movement, and they were trying to put it in context. I think it was on BET or something to kind of show everybody what this new big thing is. Because at the time, there was also the snap movement that was going on in Atlanta, which was very successful and very commercially successful. And you can kind of, you know, that was being exposed to the world already. 
you also had what was going on in Houston, which was being exposed to the world already. So this was, oh, a prepackaged, another movement we can put together and get behind, show the world, you know what I'm saying, and capitalize off. And that's the first time I heard the term hyphy movement, you know what I mean? Prepackaged movement? Capitalize off it? Yeah. I recall the BET documentary, as well as the Rap City series that BET did, where they highlighted hyphy for a week. Mixed emotions. While our lifestyle was in the limelight, the story wasn't quite right. A more accurate depiction came from Oakland Sway Calloway, as he hosted a special on the Bay for MTV's My Block. The episode starts with a nod to historical hip-hop figures, with cameos from MC Hammer and members of the almighty hieroglyphics. They were posted in the dubs a couple of blocks from where my friend Will was killed. What's up, world? Welcome to My Block Debate. Now, this show is extremely important to me because this is literally my block, East Oakland, 23rd Ave. And if they do segments with E-40 and Too Short, as well as I and I and Nump. At one point, San Francisco San Quinn tells Sway, I'm part of the hyphy movement, but my raps ain't funny. In another segment, Keek the Sneak explains how hyphy is another way of saying hyperactive. Stretch, who had seen hyphy become commodified, also looked at Keek for the origins of the term. Arguably one of the biggest hyphy songs, that's my word, he says, doing hella shit at one time. My definition of hyphy is thizzing and sniffing lines. <laughs> so the godfather of hyphy gave you his definition of what it was. As somebody from East Oakland, I think that he would probably be qualified to define what hyphy was. <laughs> On a sunny Saturday afternoon in the early 2000s, you could drive through East Oakland, bank a ride on Bancroft, and hear this Keek the Sneak song blapping out of the speakers in front of a record store and cultural hub named Moses Music. And the person on the ones and twos was probably Rita Forte, formerly known as DJ Backside. I literally asked the owner, whose his name was Moses, could I set up my turntables and just come on a Saturday and just DJ right outside, like for the public, just for free, just so that people can see me. In addition to spinning at the record store and breaking local artists' records, Rita used to spin at parties and functions I attended. She has locks now, but back then, Rita, a taller, brown-skinned sister, would often wear her hair straightened to shoulder length or rock a baseball hat. She'd also wear these shirts that read, Got Bay with a question mark, a play off the old school Got Milk commercial. And she had a mixtape series of the same name. Back then, Rita was also traveling around the country, taking the town with her. Different cities would want me to come to their city and play a hyphy set. You know, at first, I didn't catch on. I thought they just wanted to hire me. I don't know, sometimes I'm that naive. But when they sent me the flyer, it would say like hyphy set by DJ Backside. I was like, oh, you know. And it worked for her, taking Rita from spinning records in East Oakland to spinning the globe. I got to travel internationally. I got to travel to Taiwan and to Germany. And those gigs, definitely, they wanted me to play a hyphy set. So wait, you went to Germany and you were playing like white tees, blue jeans, and Nikes? Yeah, it was great. What was that like? They were rocking to it. I mean, they knew that what I was coming to play. So there was definitely people in the crowd who knew it. 
there were people in the crowd who were, as I remember, you know, requesting certain songs, play that um, E-40 or whatever. You know, sometimes it would be a song that I would just be like, for real, you know that? I mean, Hyphy, it stretched. Hyphy stretched, but it was also confining. Through her travels, Rita saw the limitations, as it was a sound that was different than most other hip-hop at the time, especially on the East Coast. Anytime I would go to New York, I would like drop by like probably at least five or six different record labels. It was a lot of kind of executives that I think were kind of like, you know, I don't know if I would say hating, but just like being, what is this hyphy thing? And to be honest, I still think a lot of them still, you know, wonder what hyphy was to this day. I feel like I had a recent conversation with someone. They were like, yeah, I never really understood it. I mean, you guys still hyphy? Yeah, never really got it, you know? So when I hear that, I'm not too surprised because I don't think we were the best translators of the movement. So Rita, she tried taking that into her own hands. I would come back to the Bay and I'd be like, yo, Keek, this is what, you know, you need to do this in your video or fab or, you know, too short, whatever. Just any time I could have like a little word or conversation with any of the artists, I'm like, you need to make a video for this. You know what I mean? You need to show. There's so many hyphy songs that did not get videos. That was hugely a downfall. Rita's efforts to push the Bay's culture also led to her getting a show on air as a DJ and host with 106.1 KMEL, the Bay Area's leading hip-hop station. Having her own slot as a DJ and host on KMEL was huge for Rita's career, but she felt like they were shortchanging her with the time slot they offered. I thought that was kind of odd uh, just hearing it. I was like, 12 to 2 a.m., who am I going to, on on a Friday night? Like, what? Y'all can't give me something, you know, in the daytime or something? You know, that's that's definitely what I was thinking. Rita eventually took the gig, working from midnight Friday night until 2 a.m. Saturday morning. And it worked for her. I was on there every week, you know, at that time slot. And it turned out to be a cool time slot, to be honest with you. People was getting out the club on a Friday night, and they was turning me on. You know, so it was good. So I don't know if that they thought about that or what, but like it turned out to be an excellent time slot. And so KML definitely did that for me. It definitely elevated my career as a DJ, my success. I got opportunities, like I was saying, traveling, being on BET, working with all the artists in the Bay, um, working with artists outside of the Bay. And my show, not only was I a DJ, I was also an on-air personality, so I also got to speak. So I would do interviews and everything like that. And I mean, that is some, that is some power. When Rita joined KML, the station was going through some turbulent times. In the years prior, it had been absorbed by the major media conglomerate Clear Channel. Then, management fired some very well-liked on-air hosts. Local artists were upset that the place known as the People Station wasn't playing local music as much anymore. And community organizers, they met with station reps to discuss the station's content, amongst other things. Plus, there were competing hip-hop stations in the same market that were growing in popularity. I didn't really understand that whole thing to the depth that I think I should have. Um, you know, I'll say the word, you know, because eventually 
maybe like six or eight months later, you know, I think someone said the word to me. They're like, yeah, like you were like a pawn, you know, you were a chess piece, you know, you were used in this situation and really like putting it that clear to me. I was like, oh, Rita felt like her hiring was part of the station's attempt to show the community's involvement. And then when she wasn't needed anymore, things shifted. Rita's time slot got moved back one hour and shortened. She was now on from 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. on Saturday mornings, a relatively dead time. She took the change in stride and even took to MySpace to encourage her followers to tune in to her new and improved time of 2 a.m. She also changed her personal schedule. She'd go to clubs or events before her radio show, or sometimes she would just pull up to the station and sleep out front in her car until it was time to go on air. One night, I was in my car sleeping, and I overslept. And I woke up. I remember I woke up at 3, at 3, like on the dot, right after when my show was ending. And I was just like, (sighs) I I just knew it. I was like, that's it. They're going to use this. This is the end. Um, And that's exactly what happened. Rita was let go from KML after she missed her DJ slot, and she never worked in radio again. She feels like she was blackballed back then. And to this day, she still feels the weight of that time. After all that she did for the hyphy movement, she didn't really get that in return. The fact that I was one of the biggest proponents of the hyphy movement. Again, I was traveling. I was getting hired outside. You know, I was one of the very few DJs doing that, like on large scales, like BET, like wearing my Got Bay shirt, you know, on TV, you know, shouting out these artists, Turf Talk. I remember when I came back from BET, Turf Talk was like, man, you shouted me out on BET. Like it was a big deal, you know? So I was out there campaigning for hyphy. It was just hard to really figure out, like, what was real and what wasn't, and who had my back and who didn't. As an avid consumer of Bay Area hip-hop, man, I had no idea this was happening behind the scenes. But as I talk to folks about this era, it's clear that Rita's story of the highs and lows of that period aren't rare. Lots of people had career-changing experiences back then. Numerous artists had projects shelved and contracts fall through. Clubs where shootings occurred were shut down. Rappers, dancers, and models got caught up in fast money and drugs, things that didn't last long. But for some folks, like Rita, the dreams that didn't pan out then led to new opportunities today. Looking back at it now, do you feel like that incident led to your career trajectory changing? Absolutely. I mean, we're sitting in the career trajectory change right now. We were sitting inside the office of our graphic design and t-shirt printing company, the Olive Street Agency. After being DJ Backside for for 10, 11 years, I learned a lot about choosing a name because that name was, ooh, spicy. So I really wanted to take the time of, of choosing a name for this next endeavor, the Olive Street Agency. Olive Street in East Oakland is where Rita's family has owned property for three generations. And through her family, Rita's developed a deep religious devotion and a sincere appreciation for the stories in the Bible. One of my faves, though, of course, is the story of Noah and the Ark, and specifically the part of that story where, you know, they're out there, it's raining, pouring, and Noah sends out a dove, and the dove comes back with an olive branch in its mouth. 
signifying that there's hope, there's land out there, there's, there's a tree out there, and to keep going. Even though Rita is no longer spinning records or interviewing hip-hop artists live on the radio, some of the people she met back then are clients of her printing company. They use shirts to campaign for office, memorialize loved ones, or promote an upcoming project. I guess that's storytelling on a different scale. And Rita herself is still channeling the spirit of the soil and telling the story of a kid from East Oakland. But now, it's through an entity that she owns. While capitalism can corrupt culture, you're never going to stop the independent entrepreneurs from telling their story. Especially out here. The home of slinging tapes out the trunk. Next time, on the final episode of Hyphy Kids Got Trauma, we discuss this generation as a whole and the philosophy written in graffiti that inspired this project. Hyphy children got trauma and I put that on mama's hyphy children got trauma and I put that on mama's pretty much it turned into a chant. This is Hyphy Kids Got Trauma, hosted by me, Pendarvis Harshaw, produced by Maya Cueva. Edited by Chris Hambrick. Sound design and original music by Trackadivics. With support from Eric Arnold, Cherie Bishop, Jin Xian, Holly Kernan, Victoria Malion, Marisol Medina Cadena, Gabe Maline, Jorge Olivares, Delincey Parham, Cesar Saldana, Sarah Cavedo, Katie Spranger, Nastia Vonaskaya, and Rice Stottenborough. This project was produced with support from PRX and is made possible in part by a grant from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. And it's part of KQED's That's My Word Project, a year-long exploration of Bay Area hip-hop history. Find more at bayareahiphop.com. R.I.P. Andre, Mac Dre Hicks, and so many more. Keep it lit. Peace. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.